Remedy Think Radio. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens, where we discuss issues involving your children as they're growing up. I'm Dr. Morgan McLeod, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at UMMC. Today, we have pediatric neurologist Dr. Brad Ingram on with us. He specializes in diagnosing and treating seizures, so today we're going to be talking all about seizures and other common topics in pediatric neurology. Share your comments and questions with us this morning by calling us at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can always send us an email at kids at mpbonline.org. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens from MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Morgan McLeod, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at UMMC. Today we have pediatric neurologist Dr. Brad Ingram on with us. He specializes in diagnosing and treating seizures. So today we're going to be talking about seizures and all other common topics in pediatric neurology and anything that you may have questions or comments about. We'd love to hear from you, so give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can always send us an email at kids at mpbonline.org. So thank you, Dr. Ingram, for coming on with us today. Thank you for having me. So I was reading some statistics about seizures and epilepsy, and I saw that it said nearly 3 million Americans suffer with epilepsy. Right. So in general, some, some basic statistics. It's Seizures in particular are very common. One in 10 Americans will have a seizure in their life, which is a really common thing that we don't really talk about a lot. Most of those patients do not have diagnosed epilepsy. They just have an isolated seizure because when your brain is unhappy, the two ways it can express that it's unhappy are seizing and going to sleep. That's all you, all the brain can do to pull pull the, the string. So um, it's not uncommon for people to have seizures for loads of reasons, um, including just I don't feel good, I've got an infection, that sort of thing, and my brain's unhappy, so I have a seizure, right? Epilepsy affects about 1 in 26 Americans. So even by comparison to other diseases, that's still very, very common. But epilepsy, by definition, is two or more seizures, usually separated by some period of time. We, I usually teach 30 days um, that are not provoked. So I don't have a fever. I'm not sick. It's not related to some medication that I'm taking, that sort of thing. And that's what ep- epilepsy is basically recurrent seizures. But yeah, very, very common, uh, even in America. Yeah. And uh, um, like almost 500,000 kids are affected. Is right. What I was so, reading, so of those 3 million. Yeah. It's dis- so it's a really interesting disease in that if you look at a chart of who gets it, it's kids um, kind of the, the highest population frequencies the first year of life. So it affects kids disproportionately for sure. But even up through five, 10 years of age, you still got a fairly high amount of new epilepsy diagnosis every year. And then by the time you hit your 20s, 30s, 40s, new onset epilepsy is very, very rare, super duper rare. 
And then when you move into more of the elderly population, and this is becoming more and more and more relevant because we're having more and more elderly people, um, when you hit 60, 65, the, the seizures start to pick up again. So if you look at the age distribution, it looks just like a U. Mm-hmm. Lots of babies, lots of older people, not a lot of new epileptics in the middle of life. So it's an interesting disease. It does absolutely affect children um, significantly more than it does adults. And that's also important because the causes are very different. When you talk to um, the the older lady in your Sunday school class that has seizures, the causes for her seizures are typically related to some very focal, very specific structural brain dysfunction. When you talk about kids, it's a very diverse group. So we've got genetic epilepsies. We've got metabolic epilepsies where you don't metabolize sugar or salt or calcium correctly, we still have those same focal structural problems, but a lot of ours are from when we were developing and before we were born, not something that happens to us. And then we still have kind of the post-traumatic kind of brain injury seizure. So it's a big um, kind of catch-all diagnosis for a lot of kids who are going through a lot of different things. So we're talking today to Dr. Brad Ingram. He is a pediatric neurologist. Uh, we'd love to hear any questions that you may have, so give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. So tell us a little bit about what a pediatric neurologist is and what all you treat, and a little bit about your training, because you have had a lot of training <laughs> to get where you are today. I'm just a super nerd. I'm a super <laughs> nerd. Um, so I... Actually, did I'll do the second question first, and then the, the first question second. So I did. So to be a pediatric neurologist, obviously you have to go to medical school. We all do some training in pediatrics. I did uh, a full pediatrics residency, and then we do um, a second training series of years in child neurology, where we do a year of adult neurology and then two years of peds. So we're a little, <laughs> we're a little ADD. We're a little all over the place. Every year is a little bit different than the year before. But when we finish, we tend to be pediatricians who are really good at the nervous system. That's the goal. I did an extra year in um, epilepsy that's focused specifically on that. So um, I had a a classmate tell me that he did pediatric epileptology because it was the longest thing he could find to fit on his white coat. It's a long word. Only one of my patients can say epileptologist, and that's okay. Um, But So for me, it was a total of eight years of training. Now, the training has changed a little bit, so most of the people who are doing it now do uh, I was a little bit of a glutton for punishment, so voluntarily did in seven years what most people now do in five. And then that extra epilepsy year would be extra. As to what we treat, the nervous system l- literally affects everything you do, right? We think of the brain as being a clear example of the nervous system. But neurologists actually take care of the brain, the spinal cord, the peripheral nervous system, and the muscles. So really, that's a big part of who people are. Um, and in that disease, the diseases certainly include things like epilepsy. We have MS. We have um, brain tumors, cancer, spinal cord disease, neuropathies, muscle diseases. So it's a wide spectrum of, of diseases. And a lot of us end up choosing kind of one part of that tree to focus on. So most epileptologists, most people who focus on epilepsy, try to stay inside the skull. We don't like to <laughs> we don't like to stray outside of the skull too much. And then a lot of our peripheral neurologists do more of the muscle disorders or the peripheral nervous system disorders. And then we kind of share the spinal cord. So it's a bit. Our clinic 
has uh, a wide variety of doctors. We have doctors that specialize just in headache, doctors that specialize just in pain, doctors that specialize just in epilepsy, doctors that specialize in movement disorders. So it's a really bizarre kind of collection of people that all focus around one organ system. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, so tell us a little bit about what a seizure, you know, because there's so many different types of seizures out there, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. there can be all a whole variety of the symptoms that somebody may experience. Mm-hmm. So what are some what are some signs that your child could be having a seizure? Right. So <clears throat> a seizure, when people hear seizures, they go straight to Grey's Anatomy, right, <laughs> at the grocery store, jerking on the floor. Uh, and that is a large percentage of what seizures look like. But it is also not a large percentage of what seizures. There are a lot of, as you mentioned, a lot of different ways seizures can look. Um, basically, what I tell my kids about seizures is that the nervous system is constantly at battle with itself. All neurological disease and probably a lot of psychiatric disease exists when that balance gets out of whack. And epilepsy in particular is a disease of, of electricity, right? That's how the nervous system works is electrical signals. And you are always having this battle, even a typical person on a regular Thursday, the, uh, you have electricity and then you have mechanisms to contain that electricity. All a seizure is, is either you have too much electricity or your mechanisms to contain it don't work right. And then abnormal electricity spreads. Now, that's every seizure. But what you do in a seizure is defined by where that spread happens. So if you have a part of your uh, brain that's related to speech and you're seizing from just that part, a seizure may just be, I'm staring and I can't talk, right? Um, Certainly in kids, we take care of a lot of generalized epilepsies where the whole brain is involved all at once and all they do is stare, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You can have events where you have very brief falls and that's it. As soon as you hit the ground, it's over. Um, Any part of the brain that has a function can have a very small seizure there and cause a seizure that looks just like that function. So I have patients that seize just with their fourth and fifth finger on one hand, and they just flick it a few times, and that's their seizure, all the way up to people who have much more dramatic kind of what you expect from TV. But I would say the majority of my patient seizures are not the big, what we call generalized tonic-clonic events. They tend to be, at least not always, Mm -hmm. they tend to have some other features of staring, confusion, wandering around, not being able to follow commands, not being able to carry on a conversation. All of that sort of thing can be a seizure by itself. We're talking today with Dr. Brad Ingram. He is a pediatric neurologist. Uh, give us a call with any questions or comments you may have, one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 And we've got Betty on the phone now, so we'll go to Betty. Yeah, hey. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Uh, I had a seizure when I was 25. I never had any as a child, and it was... Um, after the birth of my first child, I'd had a spinal anesthesia and lost a lot of fluid and, of course, the stress of childbirth. And that's what the neurologist said, that um, it all came together to, you know, precipitate a seizure, like four days later. But um, he did never, he never diagnosed his epilepsy. He just said, I had a seizure, I was born with a seizure disorder and that I would have to take phenobar the rest of my life, and I have, and I'm 72 years old. I've only had one other seizure at, uh, 13 years after the first one because I was working a lot of night shifts and forgot to take my medicine, and I had that seizure at home, so I was lucky. 
But uh, I'm very reluctant to stop because he's, of course, he's been dead and gone a long time ago, my neurologist. But uh, I'm 72, and I just wonder if there's any long-term side effects that I should be uh, watching for or... You know, I don't seem to have anything now that I know of, but um, long-term use of phenobar. Um, it has, correct. I mean, you know, it was a miracle drug for me. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I think <clears throat> one of the interesting things about medicine in general and neurology is how um, dramatically different things can be over the course of, of 40 years. And my um, my congratulations on on really a, a pretty seizure-free life throughout all that. Uh, in general, my teaching for my patients is that um, I reassess, and of course I'm taking care of a pediatric population, and that's a very specific uh, group of people who are also going through puberty. The brain really likes testosterone. It doesn't love estrogen. So a lot of times the epilepsy may change and shift as you grow up. Um, and that's why I suspect you had problems, particularly around the delivery of a baby. Uh, it is very, very common for women to have a seizure related to a delivery or their pregnancy. Sometimes that's related to high blood pressure. Sometimes that's related to as all the things you mentioned, right? Like your brain's unhappy because it's a tough thing sometimes to deliver a child. And so, um, it's not uncommon for us to see people who seize there. In general, my gestalt is if you have a seizure and your EEG is normal, the brainwave test we use where we put stickers all over your head, it's just like an EKG. It's just of your brain, not your heart. If that's normal, I reassess my patients every two years and try to wean them off their medicine. Now, if they prove to me that every time they wean off they're going to have seizures, then I usually have a conversation with them about um, – you know, we may need to be on this long term, but I think it's worth having that conversation, especially in the in the preteen and in the teenager, because we're talking about maybe once you start driving, it's really hard to wean your meds. Mm-hmm. So I t- try to have that conversation with my kids when they're 14, 15, so that if we're going to wean, let's go ahead and do it now before you get your driver's license. Um, as to the, you know, long-term side effects of phenobarb, I suspect if there were going to be any, you would already have them. So um, it's it's a good drug. It's not one that we typically use as first line anymore. Um, but it's a great seizure drug. Um, the one thing I would caution anyone who's on some of the older anticonvulsants, so if there's a lot of adults listening who have a similar story that are on Dilantin or Phenobarb or Tegretol, any of those drugs, um, is the real risk to um, your bones. And we don't talk about that a lot, but a lot of those drugs change the way your body metabolizes the hormones related to early healthy bone growth. So if you start phenobarb in your teens or 20s, there's always a risk that you're going to get into trouble with early osteoporosis or fractures um, as you get older if you're in a long period of time. So I would highly recommend, if you're not already, adding a multivitamin or some Tums with some extra calcium into your into your diet. Yeah, and you can always talk to your doctor, too, about doing – we have scans for osteoporosis, right? Um, bone density scans, so that – we usually start them at 65 anyway, so you may have already had one, but it's something you can talk to your doctor about as well, right. getting that set up. And the main reason that phenobarb is a fantastic anticonvulsant, we use it a lot in our very, very small patients, and then after that it falls out of favor a little bit, primarily – because it's one of our more sedating anticonvulsants. It makes you sleepy. Right. And so uh, most new moms at 25 these days, if they have a better option that doesn't make them really sleepy, 
uh, will opt for a drug that's not quite as um, as sedating as phenobarb is. Yeah. Thank you so much for your call, Betty. We'll take a quick break. We'd love to hear from you, so give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can always send us an email at kids at mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Morgan McLeod, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at UMMC. Today we have Dr. Brad Ingram. He is a pediatric neurologist who specializes in treating and diagnosing seizures. So today we're talking about seizures, but any other common topics in neurology that you want to discuss, uh, give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can always send us an email at kids at mpbonline.org. Looks like we've got another caller, so we'll go next to Tara. Thanks for calling. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah. What's your question today? So my daughter's diagnosed with a paraventricular locomalacia. Um, so she does have seizures. It's a very mild case of it. Uh, but she also recently got diagnosed with attention deficit disorder. Mm. Is there a connection between the two? Tara, that is a fantastic question and one that I probably discuss eight times a day <laughs> in clinic. Um, very, 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 very common um, link there. So uh, there are two ways to think of, of seizures and neurological disease. So the first is that, and, and I always say that, you know, what's the smoke and what's the fire, right? So the first and the, probably the easiest to wrap our heads around is, the seizures are really, really, really bad, and so we have the inattention because we're seizing all the time. And so it's the, the seizures are the fire, and the inattention is the is the smoke. But that's very rarely the actual case. Usually, the the core concept is that both the seizures and the ADHD are are smoke, and the common fire is the early um, brain injury from the periventricular leukomalacia. And we see that not just with PVL, but with any kind of early childhood brain, uh, either the way it was formed wasn't typical or there's been some sort of injury um, because, like I said, the brain doesn't have a lot of ways to express that it's unhappy. The first is going to be potentially the seizures. The second would be sleepy. And the third would be cognitive processing or my ability to pay attention for long periods of time and sit still and that sort of thing. So they're kind of not necessarily related to one another. 
um, but in the sense that one causes the other, but 50% of epileptic kids have ADHD. So it's a very, very, very common, what we call comorbidity, meaning they happen together. Uh, it probably just comes from the fact that the reason that we're seizing is the same reason that we're inattentive. And the only thing that we have to uh, be aware of a little bit is that there is um, a little bit of a risk that if you put a child on a stimulant for ADHD, that it could potentially lower their seizure threshold, meaning make them more likely to seize. I would say in all of my patients, I've seen that actually happen less than five times. But I always counsel my ADHD families, who are also my seizure families, that if you try a drug, a stimulant for their ADHD, and you should, if that's what's right for your kid and your family with your doctor, but if you try and the seizures seem to get worse, it may mean that we need to try a different drug for the ADHD in particular. Okay. Yeah, she's on Keppra and Focusil. That like is are those medications okay together? Absolutely, Keppra gets along with everyone. Yeah. <laughs> it's <Okay>. the, it's <laughs> the best one. That's why we use it so much. It's the best one to have at the party. It doesn't. It plays nicely with everyone else um, mm-hmm. from a metabolism standpoint. So that's a pretty typical combo mambo where you have a child on a first line drug like Keppra. And, and a stimulant is very, very typical. And as long as you're, I didn't say that about the stimulants to make you nervous. It's just, uh, I, I want people to be aware that that is a potential consequence. If your child is taking a stimulant and doing fine from a seizure standpoint, then you can ignore that. That's not going to be a problem for you. It's just something we don't talk about a lot and I want people to be aware of. Okay. Yeah. Well, thanks for the heads up. Sure. Yeah. Thank you so much for your call. We're talking today with Dr. Brad Ingram. He is a pediatric neurologist, so he specializes in diagnosing and treating seizures. We'd love to hear any questions or comments that you may have, so give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. So if uh, for parents out there that maybe they've recognized some weird kind of little mm-hmm. movements that their children are doing or weird little habits that they're doing, and they are concerned that maybe it could be a seizure, mm-hmm. what should they do? And how would y'all diagnose that it is a seizure? Great. So um, I think the first thing you should do is talk to your your primary care provider, your pediatrician, your family medicine doctor. Um, there are a lot of things that kids do that can look like seizures that aren't, Right. Um, I would encourage families that if that worry button's going off, that you don't ignore it. Seizures are something that we should take pretty seriously for a lot of reasons. Um, but the first step is what's called an EEG. And an EEG is, like I said, it's just like an EKG of your heart. It's just of your head instead. Um, anyone can order one of those. They're very easy. You don't have to be able to sleep for them. It's 20 minutes. Bring an iPad or your cell phone. <laughs> the kid won't even know what's happening to them. Um, it doesn't hurt in any way. Uh, and my general kind of when I'm on the phone with a pediatrician that's asking me about maybe this kid's seizing, maybe they're not, the EEG is the best triage mechanism we have. So if we get an EEG and it's normal, that doesn't necessarily mean your child's not having seizures. It means they didn't have seizures during that 20, 30-minute study. But it also means that we're not looking at a terrible, terrible catastrophic epilepsy if you get a normal EEG. And the opposite is true. If you think a child might be having seizures and you get a very abnormal EEG, then I need to see that kid real quick, right? That's not somebody that we can sit on and wait. And um, So I think an, e- an EEG is a very easy, very fast um, triage mechanism to see kind of how much should we all be worried and how aggressive should we be. It is rare, but what happens where a kid comes in for an EEG and they get admitted to the hospital from their visit, 
because their EG is so abnormal and they need help right now, right? So that can be even maybe better sometimes than a history and physical can be very, very helpful in deciding what direction that we need to go in. And it also is really, really good at helping us pick our drugs because some drugs make certain seizure types worse Mm -hmm. uh, and we need to know what we're taking care of. After that, if we're still having spells, then we probably need to go see a pediatric neurologist. We have neurology clinics in Tupelo, Meridian, Jackson, Gulfport and Hattiesburg. So almost the whole state, there's a neurologist pretty close Um, and uh, give, have a conversation with them. If we feel like there's something focal to the seizure, meaning there's one part of the brain that's unhappy, then we'll almost always get an MRI of the brain to make sure that there's not a structural problem there that we need to worry about. Um, And then we do treatment. The vast majority of children will be on drug for treat, will be on drug for two years and then, like I said, every two years we need to be having that conversation about whether or not they need to stay on it. Um, after that, it's kind of a we wait and see what the patient's going to do and what they're going to tell us. And that tends to be the majority of patients' interactions with us is we get an EEG, we may or may not get an MRI, we try a drug or two, we get them under seizure control, and then we move on with our life once we've you know got them under control or are able to wean them off drugs. Okay. So you mentioned that y'all have clinics all throughout the state. Mm -hmm. How could somebody get in touch with y'all if they felt like they needed to? Just talk to your pediatrician. They can make a referral. We're we're building, uh, always building more opportunities for for pediatric neurology. There's, unfortunately, um, we are more rare than we should be. And there are um, loads and loads and loads of children who need us. And so um, we're always looking for opportunities not just to have more pediatric neurologists in Jackson at the Children's Hospital. Um, I go to Tupelo one day a month, and I'm always convicted by how far some of my patients drive mm-hmm. to see me in Jackson with a special needs child. That's a, that is a long way to drive for a doctor's visit. Um, and so one of our goals is to kind of have someone pretty close by, um, no matter where you live, so that we, you can get to us uh, quickly. Right. And so you were talking about the EEGs and how sometimes it may not always capture it if they're mm-hmm. if they're not having a seizure then. Mm-hmm. So sometimes tell us about um, I know you all put people in the hospital sometimes and like put them on continuous EEGs right. and different things like that. When might that be needed? So <clears throat> statistically speaking, two thirds of epileptics, adult or peds will respond to the first drug or two that we put them on. And those are our kind of easier to control in many cases, no matter what you prescribed, they would get better, right? So that first two-thirds tends to follow that path we just talked about. If you fall on that other third that's not responding to the first two drugs, then you're, by definition, you have resistant, pharmacoresistant or refractory or intractable, whatever word you want to use, for just more severe epilepsy. So those people warrant a more aggressive evaluation because they're not responding to the treatments that we're using. And we'll do what's called a video EEG Video EEG is anywhere from overnight to seven nights. It just kind of depends on what we need to capture. Um, and we admit you to the hospital. It sounds a lot more dramatic than it is. <laughs> Getting admitted to the hospital, everyone always, their eyes get really big. It is a very boring hospital admission. Mm-hmm. But we admit you to the hospital. In many cases, we'll hold your medicines, not always. But we want to see if we can elicit an abnormal EEG or maybe even a seizure there. It's kind of a weird place to work where... The, on the board and the hospital, the nurses write the goals for the day, and the, our goals for the day are always seizures, which is a bizarre <laughs> thing, but that's where we can help you most. Right. Finding out that information is invaluable. 
Um, and so they, the kids love it because we have great movie channels. The parents are bored to death. Mm-hmm. But they come in. They have a button to push. So if they see a spell, they can um, mark that part of the EEG. And then I look at every second of every 24 hours of EEG um, to look for not just EEG abnormalities during the spells themselves, but in between to look for abnormalities that would go along with the potential for having seizures. Right. And it's really important that we figure out what type of seizure because right. our medicines that we use to treat it depend on what kind of seizure you're having. Right, right. And sometimes I can make kids way, way worse with my prescription pad. Mm-hmm. And so knowing what I'm taking care of, and sometimes it's not even seizures. Kids can do loads of crazy mm-hmm. things. And I have taken care of many, many children who came to me on four or five seizure drugs, and they didn't even have epilepsy. They had something else that was going on, narcolepsy or something like that. And in the meantime, we're buying them all of these side effects from these drugs, but not treating their problem. So a lot of times it is about making sure that we know what we're taking care of. And then the other part about that is if you fall into that third, there is always a role and a conversation for other non-drug-related therapies. Mm-hmm. So we do ketogenic diet on a lot of our kids who have very specific epilepsies. We can do vagal nerve stimulators, which are kind of like pacemakers but for your brain that re- reprogram your brain to stop seizing over time. And then in our most significant cases, we'll actually do epilepsy surgery. So we will resect either the lesion that's causing the seizure or the lobe of the brain that's causing the seizure, or even in some cases, half of the brain to resect the diseased half of the brain to fix the epilepsy. And that's of particular importance to kids because we always talk about how in adults, when we talk about stroke, time is brain. In kids, time is development, Mm -hmm. right? So the longer we let a child have a very refractory, very terrible epilepsy, and don't fix it if we can. We can't. We're not always successful. But the longer we wait, the longer, the bigger a hit they're going to take in their long-term development. So over the past ten years, epilepsy surgery in children has become significantly more aggressive because what we're noticing is if we wait until you're 16, 17 to do your epilepsy surgery instead of doing it when you're two or three, who you turn out to be in the long run may not be quite as robust from a development and a cognition standpoint. Right. Right. So we're talking today with Dr. Brad Ingram. He is a pediatric neurologist, and he specializes in diagnosing and treating seizures. But we can talk about any other topic in neurology that you may have. So give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. And we'll take a quick break. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens and MPB Think Radio. 
I'm Dr. Morgan McLeod, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at UMMC. Today we have pediatric neurologist Dr. Brad Ingram on with us. He specializes in treating seizures and helping with the diagnosis of seizures, as well as other general topics in pediatric neurology. So we'd love to hear from you. Give us a call. Share your comments and questions with us at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 Or you can always send us an email at kids at mpbonline.org. So we've talked a little bit about um, how to diagnose seizures and how to maybe recognize that your kid mm-hmm. could potentially be having a seizure. But what do you tell parents what to do when your kid has mm-hmm. a seizure? Yeah. You know, and there may be some people out there. Um, it happened to a family member of mine, a teenage girl. It was her first time. Um, her mom went to wake her up from a nap and she was having a seizure and uh, it was terrifying to mm-hmm. her, and it is really scary to me. Even though I've seen it happen numerous times, it's, right. it still gives you a little adrenaline rush. And I can only imagine um, how someone would feel if it's your own family member. Mm-hmm. So, um, what do you tell people when they see that happening? It could be a stranger in the street that it may be right. happening to, and, and it's very commonly is a stranger yeah. on the street. And it's very important to keep everybody safe when that happens. So, right. give us some advice for what to do if that happens. So, when I lecture to the medical students, you know. I'm lecturing to a mixed bag of like future radiologists and dermatologists and all those sorts of things, along with ER doctors and anesthesiologists, people that are likely to see a seizure. Um, But seizures are very common. And the likelihood is that all of us at some point are going to know someone who's had a seizure and potentially are going to be in the presence of someone who had a seizure. They're interesting in that they, all the way back to ancient Greece, they were called, it was called the sacred disease because the presumption was that epilepsy is different than other ailments, that it's something, something it has always made people a little bit more uncomfortable to watch a seizure than, say, watch an asthma attack. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> the big thing about uh, epilepsy that you have to worry about, especially in a big seizure, is um, breathing, right? So mm-hmm. um, I tend to recommend people, especially if you find someone having a big seizure, the best thing you can do, roll them on their side. You don't want them to choke on anything. You don't want any drool or if they're vomiting going down in their lungs. So lay them on their side. It doesn't matter which side. And um, don't restrain them in any way. People love to hold people down having a seizure. They love to aggressively restrain the head and neck. Um, people love to put wooden spoons in seasoned people's mouths. Uh, don't restrain them in any way. You can certainly cradle the head to keep the head uh, safe uh, and don't put anything in their mouth. There's the old adage that you can swallow your tongue, which is physiologically not possible. But if it was, someone having a seizure is not the person that's going to be able to do that. They're not coordinated enough to do that. So the big risk is not swallowing your tongue. It's the liquid, the drool, the vomit, the spit, that sort of thing. So roll them on their side. Don't put anything uh, in their mouth. Um, the vast majority of seizures stop on their own. 90% of them stop on their own before two minutes. So most of the time, um, you're all, by the time you get them on their side and that sort of thing, the seizure is probably almost over. Um, there are loads of rescue medicines that patients may have with them, some of them um, go up their nose, some go in their mouth, some actually are rectal drugs. Um, but I would recommend for the average person who just stumbles on someone having a seizure, roll them on their side and call 911. Um, and then by the time, you know, hopefully 911 will be quickly, but most of the time, by the time that 911 gets there, the seizure's already over. Right, right. 
We have Dr. Brad Ingram in with us. He is a pediatric neurologist. We'd love to hear from you, so give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. We've got Lewis in the line, so we'll go next to Lewis. Thanks for calling today. Okay. Uh, I would like to ask, uh, what? where is the blurring or where to the line between what we call psychiatric illness and that uh, these things a neurologist would treat. Do you see my point? You mean outside of epilepsy? Like, what's the difference between a neurologist and a psychiatrist? Yeah, but also, what's the difference in the patient? I mean, what would be, what's the difference in, like, what we call mental illness, schizophrenia, and epilepsy, which we don't tend to call a mental illness? Got it. Um, that is a great question. My impression, honestly, Lewis, is in a hundred years. If you ask that question, the answer will. I think that neurology and psychiatry, especially as we age in this century, with understanding of imaging of the brain, genetics of the brain, the treatment. You know, a lot of my seizure drugs are now used in psychiatry and vice versa. I think the lines between what a neurologist is and what a psychiatrist is are blurring aggressively. And there is a lot of time where a patient needs to see both of those, a, 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 a psychiatrist and a neurologist, many times from the same brain lesion, but with different, um, what you what you see in the patient is very different. So neurologists tend to manage um, the kind of very clearly uh, seen structural issues of the brain. Um, they tend to manage very specific diseases of the brain itself. Uh, psychiatrists tend to see, if, if we can get philosophical for a moment, tend to manage diseases of the uh, kind of the mind and spirit, right? So when we talk about mental illness, we tend to talk about things that would a patient that would have a normal MRI, right? That would have um, a normal uh, neurological exam, but the way that they inter- interface with the world or interact with the world is different. In many cases, your best bet is to have a good psychiatrist and a good neurologist. The caller who called earlier, that's a perfect example. The seizures in her child and the PVL are very much neurological disorders. The ADHD technically falls under a psychiatric banner, even though most children don't need to see necessarily a psychiatrist for that. But that technically is a psychiatric disease. So it's getting tougher and tougher and tougher to uh, clearly delineate um, when... You, when this is clearly a psychiatric drug or disease and when this is clearly neurologic. And I think as we get farther in the century, more and more and more of us are going to be kind of both, right? Um, already we have behavioral neurologists who manage mostly psychiatric disorders. Um, but if you have, if you present to any ER in Mississippi today as a child with psychiatric features, one of the first things that they're going to do is have a neurologist work you up, right? You're going to get that EEG to make sure your psychiatric features are not from seizures. They're going to do blood work to make sure you don't have other reasons to have um, issues going on with how you perceive the world around you. So it is a it is becoming a very difficult um, a difficult blurry line. But in general, psychiatrists do more of the mind and how you perceive the world around you. Neurologists tend to do more organic dysfunction of the brain that you can see with imaging or genetics or EEG. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you for your call. 
We're talking today with Dr. Brad Ingram. He is a pediatric neurologist. We'd love to hear from you, so give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. So what what all does treatment of seizures entail? Most of the time you talked about medications and you mm-hmm. kind of mentioned like some other things that we could do. So what is our goal with um, treating seizures, I guess would be my question. So sometimes we can't always stop the seizures right. um, from happening. So, so what's kind of our goal for that? So it's a sliding scale. It depends on the patient that's sitting in front of me. My first goal is always seizure freedom. Right. That's the gold standard, what we're aiming for, what we what we go for every in every patient is, is, is fixing it so that you do not have seizures. Um, period. Um, after that, you start to move into things like I have some patients that uh, go from, say, 50 seizures a day to one seizure a day, but that one seizure a day is at a very, you know, right when they're falling asleep or something like that. And in those patients, sometimes you can really over-medicate them. If you're not going to fix that one seizure, but you keep pushing the drugs up and up and up, they then become more drowsy and sleepy and not as mentally sharp as they could be. Um, so it our original goal is always seizure freedom. And then after that, it turns into function, right? I want you to live your best day today. For some of my patients, that means I need no seizures in my day, right? For some of my patients, that means I'm okay with one or two of these smaller seizures and not being over-medicated as long as I don't have any of my bigger seizures or these more disruptive seizures. So I feel like that conversation needs to be had at every clinic visit because the family's goals may be changing as the child ages mm-hmm. and especially in children who are having seizures as part of a bigger picture of neurological disease. Um, the seizures may not be the most important thing. The most important thing may be how do they sit in a t- second grade classroom and that sort of thing. So managing realistically what a good day for them um, can sometimes look a little bit different completely than all told seizure freedom. All right. So tell us a little bit about, you have a trial going on to, right. for kids um, at the university that have lived with numerous seizures every mm-hmm. day mm-hmm. that it's really affecting their life. Mm-hmm. And so y'all got a, a neat trial going on. Tell yeah. us a little bit about that. So four years ago, the legislator pa- legislature passed a law that was authored by Senator Josh Harkins that... Um, uh, for lack of a, a better explanation, basically allowed UMC to do research with CBD that was derived from the cannabis compounds in Oxford at, at Ole Miss. Um, it took us four years to get that mm-hmm. uh, through all of the government, the federal government um, uh, requirements. Uh, but we started enrolling in September and October. We have 10 children, um, really some of some of our sickest kids some of these children sees 50 to 60 times a day mm-hmm. um, and have already proven that they're not respond. They're in that one third group that I talked about. So they've already failed loads of drugs. Two of them are on seven drugs already coming into the trial. So um, they're they really do. And they're not surgical patients and they've already tried dietary therapy and it didn't work. And so really many of them already have vagal nerve stimulators. So they have nothing else to try. So it is um, CBD. It's not pure CBD. It's kind of a, a more of a refined, high-ratio CBD. But there are other cannabinoids in the plant. Um, and we see them once a month, and they we give them their CBD um, out of the research clinic at UMC. Um, 
and have been following their labs and their EEGs and that sort of thing to make sure that we're being as safe as possible um, and plan to do six months uh, with those kids. Uh, and then we're actively in the process now of reapplying to expand not just those 10 children, but um, add some more. Um, 10 was never enough right. for me. Yeah. But um, we've, we, you know, the early studies were about, is this safe? Is it tolerable? Um, and it has proven to be both of those things. So now we need to move into uh, how successful it is, right. which yeah. is a different question. Thus far, um, we've had really promising outcomes on most of our patients. Uh, no one has gotten worse, which is an irony for seizure drugs. Most seizure drugs, some, somebody gets worse on the tri- on the treatment. Um, and even aside from their seizure counts, many of them are sleeping better, are interacting with the world better. That goes into that conversation that I was having about mm-hmm. what's your best day. And so even if their seizure counts have not significantly fallen, who they are and how they are experiencing the world is 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 improved significantly. So it's been very exciting. That's very awesome. exciting. That's awesome. We'll go next to Lynn real fast before we have to wrap up. Thanks for hanging in for us. Go mm-hmm. ahead, Lynn. Thanks for taking my call. I have a um, my granddaughter just turned fifteen and she passed away last month and she had been having seizures for since she was a, a child and. I wanted to know, did, they said that she died of multiple seizures. Mm. And I just wanted to know if it was possible for people to pass away from seizures. What causes that? That is a fantastic question. And I would like, as we're closing up, to refer everyone to the Epilepsy Foundation for more information on this topic in particular, but in general, the Epilepsy Foundation of Mississippi does great, great work. Um, they have their big fundraiser on the 9th of, the, of February, so um, that's available. But they have great resources on topics just such as this and everything else we've talked about. They do great work. What you're describing, and I suspect what um, they were relating to your family, is a condition called SUDEP. Uh, S-U-D-E-P, which is, uh, just stands for Sudden okay. Unexplained Death in Epilepsy. There's actually okay. a law on the state books this year to um, uh, that's been authored and supported in hand with the Epilepsy Foundation um, to uh, reinforce education around SUDEP, especially for our state's pathologists. Um, SUDEP okay. is not a new thing. It's been around forever as epilepsy has historically had a fair amount of stigma attached to it. No one really talked about it. Sudep was buried in that topic a little bit. Uh, It is very rare. Uh, It's usually the late teen to 20-year-old patient. Um, Many of those young people have already proven to have resistant epilepsy, meaning they seize a lot anyway, Um, and tend to have the bigger major motor seizures. Um, You're talking about at most a couple of patients per thousand patient patient years. So it's very, very rare. In Mississippi, though, I would say in a given year, we probably have three or four teenagers, unfortunately, that ex- whose families experience this. And it is the best way to conceptualize it is I pass away in my sleep related to my epilepsy. 
Um, We don't understand it. I mean, that's one of the things about SUDEP is it's not we're trying to understand it so that we can prevent it. There's a lot of people who wonder if it's not related to some sort of brain heart connection. So when I seize in my sleep, my heart rate goes down, that sort of thing. Um, But we're working hard to try to figure it out more so that we can prevent cases just like yours. And I've had some dear, dear, dear children and families experience just what your family is. And I'm so terribly sorry to hear this. Okay, thank you. Thank you so very much for explaining that. Appreciate Mm -hmm. that. Yeah, thank you for your call, Lynn. Uh, we have just a few minutes left, but one thing I would just wanted to touch base on is um, what's the difference between a febrile seizure or a fever seizure? Right. And does that mean you're going to have seizures later right. in life? So the vast majority of people, when they experience epilepsy as a parent, will experience it through febrile seizures. Febrile seizures are extremely common, um, and they are very different than epilepsy. Febrile seizures are a very particular seizure that you have when your brain is going through a certain developmental phase. So typically we're talking about toddlers, right? These tend to peak around the second birthday. You can see them from about six months to about five years of age. So that kind of pre-elementary school age kid. It is not related to how high the temperature is. I had a grandmother tell me one time that your brain bakes and when it gets to medium well, you seize. That is not what's happening. Um, It's the rate of rise. So you go from not having a temperature to having a temperature very, very quickly. We see this a lot with ear infections and the flu because you spike those fevers really, really quick. Um, About half of children who have one will only have one. And then half children who only have one will have a second. And then... Half of those will have a third. So there are certain febrile seizure kids who end up on seizure medicines for the first few years of life. Um, The vast, 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 vast majority of them outgrow it, even if they have to go on meds. And never really get diagnosed with epilepsy because we try to reserve that diagnosis if we can for the patients who really need that word in their life. Febrile seizures are usually... Every time I get a high spiking fever, I have a seizure for a year or two, and then I'm done with it. They tend to be... Whole body seizures, not staring spells, and not one side of the body or the other. Um, And they tend to resolve on their own. Now, a certain very small percentage of febrile seizure children will go on to have epilepsy. Um, And those kids prove themselves very early to have both febrile, meaning with fever, and non-febrile, meaning without fever seizures. So very quickly, you get a mixture of both. Um, the key with febrile seizures is there's very commonly a family history. Mm-hmm. So ask around. And they tend to do whatever the relative did. So if the relative had three seizures and was done by age four and then outgrew it, that's more than likely what our kid's going to do. Right, right. So most of our kids out there with febrile seizures will not have It'll epilepsy. Be so. They'll be great. And when I discharge them from clinic, I just tell their moms, just remember so that when you're a grandma and you're here <laughs> as a grandma, remember me and remember that I said it was febrile seizures. Most of them grow up and it does not in any way impact their right. teenage or adult life at all. That's great. And the good thing, too, is that y'all have made so many advancements mm-hmm. um, in pediatric neurology and the treatment of all the different neurologic conditions, including epilepsy. Mm-hmm. And kids these days can go and to live completely normal oh, yeah. lives. Oh, yeah. um, sometimes they kind of tend to grow out of their seizures. Mm-hmm. Not all do, but even if you don't, a lot of our children and adults can live perfectly normal lives, even though they have a diagnosis of epilepsy, which is wonderful news. 
So we thank Dr. Brad Ingram for being on with us today. Uh, This has been Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. It's a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and generous support from listeners like you. Today's show is engineered by Jay White. I'm Dr. Morgan McLeod. Join us next Thursday at 11 for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. And stay tuned for NPR's Here and Now coming up next on MPB Think Radio.